On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Kevin Vallier about public reason liberalism and Catholic integralism. So we cover topics like what is public reason liberalism? What is a well-ordered society? What are the potential alternatives to that? Um, what do we need to have in order to have a well-ordered society? What are the social? What what is social trust and polarization? How are they connected? And then we get into what is Catholic integralism? Why is it anti-liberal? How does he understand state neutrality toward religion, given criticisms concerning the possibility of state neutrality? How does liberalism and integralism? as paradigms comparatively respond to requests for religious accommodations, religious exemptions, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church, but we don't want to just think seriously. We want to do it seriously with certain types of virtues in mind. So we've endeavored to create or hopefully promote sort of an intellectual culture that prizes things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And when we say curiosity, we don't mean like the vain sort of curiosity. We mean the, the good kind that's like interested in other people's views and wanting to understand them and have a charitable sort of disposition towards them. So we really try to do that with all the stuff that we do. So if, if, you've, if you're not familiar with us, if you're new to the podcast, that's something we really try to promote, uh, especially in our current intellectual climate where it seems like those are the sorts of things that are not prized or are not practiced. So we may not be perfect at it, but we try to do it as much as we can. Now, for today's guest, I'm really excited about this. It's it's Dr. Kevin Kevin Vallier. I don't know how many of you are familiar with him, but I know you're probably familiar with the topic of his work. I think a lot of you guys who listen are total nerds about this sort of stuff. Uh, so I think you're going to really enjoy it. So we're going to be talking about all sorts of things, political liberalism and Catholic... Um, integralism and everything that goes on with that. So before we jump into it, Dr. Valier, why don't you give us a little bit of a background on who you are and what made you interested in political theology, or just politics, political theory in general? Ah, well, um, first, you know, thanks for having me on. This is great. I, I love to be able to talk to your listeners because I've done political philosophy for a long time, um, but I am just getting my feet wet doing political theology, and it's where I intend to transition. I'll be doing projects in political economy as well, um, but I'm Christian. Um, I, uh, I was raised Methodist, became Baptist and Pentecostal when I was 13, thought it was crazy, left, was an atheist for seven years, converted, became a Missouri Lutheran. Uh, after 15 years, uh, some arguments wore down on me, and I asked whether to become Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, and Orthodoxy ran uh, one out. So I am four years old Orthodox Christian, so I have been around the block. Uh, with respect to confessions, um, and I have thought about it in agonizing detail. Um, so I'm I'm a Christian who likes to think of you know about things theologically, but I also like to think about things in terms of politics and economics. All right. So I I when I was in college when I converted uh, to Christianity, I was also really heavily involved in uh, the libertarian movement, and you know libertarians are kind of obsessed with you know theories of politics and economics, right? Um, and so I just was involved in this Christian philosophical community and this kind of libertarian philosophical community, you know, I'm 18, 19, 
20 years old then um, and um, wanted to try to figure out whether these two systems of ideas of some form of them fit together. I mean, really, the, that was the question that I was presented with is, you know, can a Christian favor a kind of limited government market economy? Do these things fit together? Um, and there's lots of reasons to think they do, and there's lots of reasons to think that they don't. But when you try to actually sort through all of them, it's extremely daunting to the point where I'm going to have to write on it for a long time. So anyway, there's my background as a Christian, my background and a little bit in high uh came at things politically, or at least where I began. Um, and so what what began to happen afterwards um, is, you know, I went to graduate school at Arizona, and I, uh, I'd had some, some very important you know, sort of intellectual influences late in college. But the kind of major influence that came after that was my advisor, Jerry Gauss. Um, and uh, Jerry was probably, I mean, understanding that he was my teacher, Probably the greatest liberal political philosopher of the 21st century. I mean, he died, you know, uh, two years ago now, um, unexpectedly. But um, his work, The Order of Public Reason, is probably one of the great works of the liberal tradition as a whole. And working with such a towering intellect um, for uh, closely for five years, who was deeply uh, a deep reader of the. Um, a deep reader of the social contract tradition, the liberal tradition broadly, that I came to kind of understand my project in much broader terms, not just about libertarianism, about which he sowed some doubts, um, but just about the sort of general idea of a kind of classical liberalism. Um, and so my dissertation was on religious conviction, liberal politics, and about the proper role of religion in, in a liberal order. Um, you know, uh, one that's broadly protective of individual liberties, uh, has the rule of law, democratic governance. Um, and, you know, lots of liberals kind of say, hey, Christians, you should not say very much or, you know, um, you know, speak in some other terms or something like this. And I say, nah, nah, you know, there's no liberal case for the, that kind of restraint. So that became my first book, Liberal Politics and Public Faith, which came out with Rutledge in 2014. It's a super accommodationist liberalism where I try to uh, defend there's no duty of religious restraint in public discourse. So Christians can appeal to the Bible in public discourse all they want. Uh, there should be extensive religious exemptions. Um, but I do think there are limits. For instance, I don't think Catholic Supreme Court justices should appeal to papal encyclicals in their decisions. Um, but I think actually there's pretty widespread agreement that that would be inappropriate. Um, so, you know, the thought was, again, as a Christian, as someone attracted to liberal institutions, do they fit? So that was the first run at it. Um, then came the trust project. So the, the things I've been working on uh, uh, starting about five years ago. And that became two books, Must Politics Be War?, which came out with Oxford in 2019, and the sequel, Trust in a Polaris Age, came out in 2020. Um, and the goal in those books was a very, sort of very, I mean, just to put it in Christian terms for, for your readers, I think that, you know, one of the things that Christians should be thinking about in politics is not just, you know, what's like the true view and what true view should reign, but rather what's true is that we have certain values and certain kinds of relationships that we place enormous values on as Christians because we're to love others, right? Um, and that 
we have to recognize that in a fallen world, you know, we're inevitably going to disagree about all kinds of things that matter, that are of any significance. And so there's this deep question, well, how do we maintain the gospel? How do we love people who disagree with us about everything, <laughs> right? And so my kind of case for liberalism is that the background for establishing relations of, say, love and friendship and reconciliation is trust. And it turns out we can study trust with the tools of political economy. And so we can look and we can say, hey, um, liberal institutions have this cool feature. They um, promote trust between diverse perspectives. And that lays the foundation for drawing nearer to others in as much as we can in a fallen and broken world. And so that's the theological background of the books. I don't talk about the theology in those books, but that's what's going on. And I'm trying to introduce and create the interdisciplinary study of social and institutional trust um, and to integrate that into the social contract tradition uh, in a way that I think continues this kind of pluralistic uh, liberalism that I've been thinking through for a long time. Okay, so there's the odyssey, as quick as I can put it, uh, up until I, Oxford invited me to write this wild book on Catholic integralism. So th there's a couple of key terms maybe we want to uh, try to define here at, at the outset. Um, so what is public reason liberalism and a well-ordered well society? And maybe you can kind of, um, as you're defining those, you can frame those against some possible alternatives that others may be familiar with. Great. Okay, so um, let's, get, let's get this term liberalism nailed down first. Um, so... The way that I think about the liberal tradition is that it's a series of philosophers, economists, politicians, party organizers, in general, um, you know, and associated policies and principles that tend to stress four different values. The first is some kind of principle of individual liberty that people are somehow naturally free. That is, that we're, not, we're not born into slavery or into submission to anyone but our parents. And then once we're adults, we're, we're equals with others. And associated with that, this idea of equality. So um, here, natural equality is, uh, again, similar to natural liberty. It's just that, no, that everyone has equal value, equal worth, equal dignity, uh, and that uh, you know all claims to hierarchy or authority need some kind of justification. Now, I think some forms of hierarchy aren't that hard to justify, but they need a justification. Uh, then there's a principle of toleration. And the principle of toleration is, has to do with this principles of an open inquiry, of, of sort of listening to others, uh, and trying to, as best we can uh, to understand where one another are coming from given that reason leads in so many directions. So I'm not an enlightenment liberal in the sense that I think the free exercise of reason apart from revelation is going to lead to agreement. I'm a post-enlightenment liberal. I think reason has fallen, and so it goes in all kinds of directions. Um, so toleration is important, but it's going to lead to lots of disagreement, not to lots of agreement. <laughs> but the fourth element of liberal tradition is that somehow we can still structure society so as to harmonize our competing interests. And that we can do this through democracy and through the market and through civil discussion, um, through civil society, you know, uh, liberty to form our own institutions like churches. Uh, and so the liberal, the liberal tradition, you know, says that we should structure institutions so that they realize the values of liberty, equality, toleration, and establish a harmony of interests. Now, those are understood differently in different ways. You know, the, the left liberal is going to say, well, harmony of interest really happens in democracy. 
liberty is going to include sort of rights to, to welfare. Equality is going to mean some redistribution. Okay. Um, toleration means we need to focus on kind of like secular scientific reasoning, right? But then there's like more like the right liberal tradition, the classical liberal tradition, which says, you know, liberty is something more like negative freedom, a non-interference from government, that equality is something more like equal rights, but not equal shares, that um, toleration involves equal respect for religious perspectives, uh, and that the harmony of interests is realized chiefly in the market, in civil society, not in democracy. So it's a range of views and it's a range of figures, but those are the ways that I understand liberalism. Okay, well, so what's public reason liberalism? Okay, well, here's the idea. Um, why do liberal institutions have any authority? Is why should we obey their directives or dictates, right? What gives us ground? Uh, and some people might appeal to what we call a perfectionist rationale. They say, well, look, liberalism best realizes the common good of the human community, the authentic, true common good, right? Um, but there are others who thought, and this with the social contract tradition of Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Immanuel Kant, then skipping for a long break till we get people like Arsani and Buchanan and Godier and Rawls and Habermas and Gauss and all the second wave social contract theory. Um, so um, their claim is that authority can't be established merely by the good alone. It has to be established partly by what we can see or recognize or agree to. Because obligation and authority belong to the will. And this is something that Christians were saying long before liberalism or social contract theory. This was the response of the divine command theorists to natural law theorists like Aquinas. And then to people who tried to harmonize them like Suarez. Um, but the problem was that the divine commands were things we disagreed, we disagreed about the good. We disagreed about what God commanded as soon as we get to the Reformation, at the very least. Um, and um, so we have to find this way to direct one another authoritatively. And so the social contract theorist said, well, if we make promises or agreements, then we're equal and we're free, and we're under each other's authority, so we've kind of solved the problem. But the problem with the social contract is that, you know, it's mythical or whatever, um, you know, if you take it super literally. Um, and so the thought was, it, it, with the sort of modern public reason movement and liberal thought, is that what we, what we, did, we don't need, like, agreement so much as we need justification. That is, we need to be able to show that liberal institutions are ones that each person can see as justified by their own light. Now, there'll be lots of different perspectives, lots of different reasonable perspectives. And so the justifications will differ depending on who we're talking to. But, they, but ultimately, the place that liberal institutions gain their authority is from the fact that they can be seen as such from the perspective of those who live under them. That's the idea. That's what public reason liberalism is. And that's where it comes from. That's where it originates in some challenges to the social contract tradition, which in turn are ways of dealing with conflicts between Christians about the character of authority in the late medieval period. Okay, so this this is actually really helpful because I'm I'm playing catch up with a lot of this stuff. I feel like I'm super interested in all the topics, but I just I didn't learn a lot of this stuff. So this is this is pretty helpful. So one question I did have as I'm reading your stuff, as I'm trying to think through it, and you've hinted at some of these topics already talking about your books on social trust and polarization. I mean, 
I feel like those two things are pretty key for a well-ordered society. So how is it that we can go about um, promoting things like social trust, especially, I mean, when I look at our own society now, it seems like, I mean, social trust of all things is not there. And it seems to be pretty extremely polarized when I look around. So like, what do we do in a context like this? Like what we're in right now with the concept of, you know, public reason, liberalism and a well-ordered society. How, how do we go about that? Well, so just two bits on the well-ordered society. This is a term that Rawls uh, revived um, and that in his hands involves allowing disagreement about the good life, but agreeing on justice. You know, I don't even take that. So here, if you just follow Gauss, who's following Hayek and Popper, uh, Faye Hayek and Karl Popper, in adopting an open society. In an open society, we can disagree about justice, too. Um, so I'm a big fan of open society. So, so the question then is, you know, there's this challenge in an open society, which is that we deeply disagree about justice and the good and about religion and all kinds of other things. And so how do we trust each other? How do we come to trust each other under those circumstances? Because if we have the same perspective. It's not so hard, right? Oh, they have good values. They're good people. But if you have a different theory of value, a different theory of virtue, a different faith, right? Um, you're going to have questions, right? You're going to say, well, this person thinks about the world very differently. Can they be trusted? Uh, and so when I think about social trust, tr this is trust in representative strangers. Uh, it's not, it's not trust in your family. It's what, what's called particularized trust. And it's not trust in institutions like the government. It's trust in the generalized other. Okay. And this turns out to be, it's been measured for a long time, for decades, um, and uh, there's just a ton of, of really cool empirical work on how valuable social trust is in so many respects. It promotes economic growth, well-being, equality, all kinds of things that you would like. It's, it's almost unparalleled in, in, in what great stuff it is. Um, and the sad thing about the United States is we're the only established democracy where social trust has fallen in a statistically significant way. Now, there are other democracies that aren't very, haven't been around for more than 50 years. So Spain, Portugal, Romania, uh, Chile are all places where there's been big drops in social trust on um, Poland. Um, but they've not established democracies. But then if you look at all the democracies that have been democracies more than 50 years, almost all their social trust levels are stable or they've risen somewhat, like in Germany. So, so we've seen a 23-point decline. We've gone from a country where about uh, half of people say most can be trusted in the 50s and 60s, early 60s. Um, to about a 30%, 31% saying most can be trusted. So what you're picking up on is a very real phenomenon. Now, the challenge for me as a liberal is um, we have liberalism, so why is trust falling if trust helps liberalism? That's the question. Um, and I think there's actually a whole host of things going on, but that liberalism has within its policy toolkit the ability to address um, a lot of the things that are calling, causing, I think, one of the big drivers of falling trust is increased political polarization. But I think political polarization is, in part, an artifact of the very screwy way that we do democracy in the United States. So, for one thing, our voting rules, our first-past-the-post voting rules, ensure that there's no point in being a third party. Because if you get 51% of the votes, you get everything. So the loser gets nothing. Or, say, in the German system... You know, you get 30% of the votes, you get 30% of the seats. So there's a point in having multiple parties. 
And we have red versus blue because we don't have a viable third party. I, I think we would be in better shape if we had red, blue, green, and yellow, you know? Um, so that's one problem that we have is just the two party system creates this polarizing dynamic. Now, other countries with multiple parties have, have seen some polarization. Okay. Um, and there are, so there's other factors going on. Um, but another difficulty that we have is that, um, the, the constitution was designed in order to make legislation difficult. And, um, that is good in a lot of ways, but what ended up happening was that we shifted a lot of controversial decision-making to the Supreme Court because the, the founders, you know, there were lots of disagreements about value of, of enormous varieties, uh, in the founding period. Um, but we went through this period in the early 20th century of, of coming to a lot more agreement on a lot of different issues. And so we depolarized to some extent. Um, but then it became clear that, you know, we weren't going, that we were going to somehow shift um, our debates from Congress, which we don't trust and everybody hates, um, to the Supreme Court, where most countries resolve their social disputes in, through Parliament. I mean, almost all European countries, they make their abortion law in Parliament. And they end up splitting the difference. I mean, it's actually much harder to get a third trimester abortion with most uh, European countries than it is in the United States. Um, but it's pretty pretty easy to get a first trimester one. And then there's disagreements about second trimester. I mean, Germany has more abortion restrictions than the United States. We have a very radical abortion regime in the United States. Um, despite uh, us being much more uh, of a Christian society than, um, than, those, than those societies. Um, so we have the extreme polarization in part because of this crazy way that we make decisions that seems illegitimate and anti-democratic and leads us to tolerate a huge amount of foibles in our politicians as long as they'll pick the right justices. So there's a whole host of features like that that just add up, but that aren't necessary features of liberal democratic order at all. Um, but that I think could be addressed if we address those factors. I don't think, I don't think it's like this spectacular catastrophe that we have to abandon liberalism in order to solve. It is something that we can deal with within the liberal policy toolkit, but it's just hard to do because our institutions at the federal level are very, very sticky. Now, of course, you know, we never want to change the constitution, but we change state constitutions all the time. So it's not like Americans can't change constitutions because we do it all the time. Um, it's just, you know, it's great that the constitution is sacrosanct in one way, but like the fact that we still have a presidential democracy that we haven't moved to a more parliamentary system, I think is a, de is a demerit. It's also, it's also needlessly polarizing. So I could go on and on and on. The point is just to say that the pro a lot of the problems that we have are due to things specific to the United States that are, per that they are perfectly, fully, principally liberal solutions to um, and that all these folks saying liberalism has failed um, are are just uh, <sighs> incorrect. <laughs> so I guess to uh, that was a good segue, I guess, on the why liberalism has failed. Um, let's let's pivot to um, Catholic integralism. So maybe you could define that for us, and then uh, you know. Maybe I guess maybe in the definition it'll become clear, but you can just kind of point out the, the major differences between that and liberalism. 
Good, good, good. So, I mean, I think the first thing to note, just to note, is that um, there are many anti-liberalisms. There are many ways of rejecting liberal values and liberal institutions. And we got a lot of them floating around. And right now they're stronger on the left than on the right. Uh, so, you know, I see left liberalism as a kind of compromise between classical liberalism and socialism. But socialism is inherently a revolutionary movement. And the socialist uh, aspect, there's just progressivism is a hybrid ideology. It's a hybrid ideology of, social, of, of socialism and liberalism. And there are various reasons that liberalism has been kind of suffering. So that symbiote, uh, liberalism, socialism, symbiote, the socialism is getting stronger. And it's not so much central planning that people are after. It's the kind of social revolutionary dimension. So you've got this destabilizing hybrid ideology on the left. Um, and so the, the, the sort of, and the anti-liberalism on the right um, is a response to those perceived revolutionary things. So Catholic integralism, I'm going to, I'm going to situate as a kind of radical ideal theory within the new counter-revolutionary right. Okay, so the new right today is different than the right of, say, the last generation in the following sense. Anglophone or English-speaking conservatism was a kind of reform conservatism. It says, look, we stand athwart history yelling, stop, right? But we're not standing athwart history yelling, we will completely crush you, the left, and we will crush you forever, right? Like we're the the movement's following Edmund Burke. It's not following Joseph de Maistre, who wants to who wanted to restore sort of throne and altar Catholic monarchy in in France in response to the revolution. Right. So two different responses. But our conservatism has been of the Burkean reformist variety. But a, a lot of younger people, particularly younger Christians, feel that they've been betrayed by that by that conservative movement because all the conservative movement has done is as they say ratify liberal pieties from the previous generation as you know part of the american social fabric um but the left so toxic um and it's in its sort of revolutionary fervor that the only thing that can be done is to defeat them there's no compromise there's no peace with these people because they're not going to be satisfied until they destroyed everything that's valuable uh every every tradition that matters every every faith that has any any attraction. Um, and so there's nothing to do but win. Okay. Important to understand that there is an appetite for Christian anti-liberalism because liberalism says toleration. Liberalism says harmony of interests. The new right does not say toleration. They say the left doesn't care about toleration. Why should we? They say there's no harmony of interests. Look at how the left governs. The left governs in this antagonistic, aggressive fashion. Um, and so they're the counter-revolutionary right rather than a truly conservative right because they don't trust the left. And so it's the loss of trust, the increase of polarization that has convert, is converting the right from a Burkean right to a Maestrian right. From a, a, a society that likes the Austrian F.A. Hayek to society, a conservatism that likes the German uh, former Nazi uh, Carl Schmitt. Um, and integralism arises in the following way. And this is, it's, it's very important to understand this. So there's a lot of anti-liberal sentiment. But young Christians aren't going to be satisfied with just like what to hate. Um, some people are. There are some people who want to live that way. But, you know, most Christians think, well, it's not good to hate, you know, bitter root and all that. What are we for? 
What are we for? Well, 30 years ago, it was the kind of fusionist libertarianism. It's like, we'll have super limited government, get the government out of the way, the church will flourish, we're, we're golden. Um, but then all these attempts to like cut back the state just didn't work because a lot of people like the state. Um, and so, and so fusionists never got to the position where the church could really take back social functions from the welfare state, which is like the goal of cutting back the welfare state from the Christian conservative perspective. It's like, look, the church, the church will expand and provide all these things, you know, the Amish writ large, right? The Amish, they don't have social security. They are exempt from it. So they take super good care of their elderly and so on. So you have this fusionist vision, which is that you'd have an open society, but with a limited government, and you'd have lots of little closed societies, um, and that would keep things going in terms of generating virtue and, and preserving free institutions and so on and so forth. So the hope was that all the things we like would go together. And the problem that the fusionists faced, it didn't quite go this way. Um, and there's a lot of you know reasons that we could explore about why. Um, but now when Christians look at liberal order and they say, okay, well, that didn't work, I think the fairer thing to say is um, that um, we just didn't know how to shrink the state. Um, but And it's, it's, it's just extremely hard to do um, for a whole variety of political economic uh, reasons. Um, and I don't think we should give up on it, but we do need to rethink about how we're going about it. Um, so the... The young Christian anti-liberal says, to hell with fusionism, literally, just destroy it. Just it, it never worked. It was a compromise with people that were immoral and corrupt. Um, <coughs> but what are we for? What are we for? Well, we're not for fusionist libertarianism anymore. What are we for? Well, we're against the whole liberal order. So what's the alternative to liberalism? What's the radical alternative? What's the inspiring ideal that is the not liberalism? What's the not liberalism? Well, let's go back in time, friends, 500 years before there was liberalism and even before there was Protestantism. Well, I guess we, for 505 years. <laughs> I mean, there are Lollards and Wicklovites and stuff. But what, um, you, 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 you catch my drift. Um, precursors to the reformers. What was the dominant political theology in Western Europe at that time? At that time. Well, here was the view. Now, there were other views, but here's the view. There's The human community has a common good. There's a good that does not reduce to the individual good of each person that it enjoys together. But that common good has two aspects. It has a temporal, a natural common good of the, of the earthly community. And then there's the spiritual community, the church, you know, that part of the human community that's that's been baptized and converted, um, that has an eternal destiny. Uh, and the sort of supernatural goods that come with that. And what God has done is he's established two authorities to govern those two parts of the common good. So you have the state, which governs the temporal common good, and then you have the church, which governs the spiritual common good. And God does not establish, establishes both of those in distinct authorization moments. So the church is not the head of the state. The state is not the head of the church, right? Render under Caesar what is Caesar's. Render under God is what is God's. That's the thought for what is often called the diarchy, right? God rules through two powers. Okay. Now for the Roman Catholic, right? Because you know, there's this is after the schism with the East. This is before open confessional Protestantism is around. Um, the authorization of the Church means the authorization of the Pope and his bishops. 
Conciliarism was still a totally legit way to go, even on down to Vatican I, so it isn't necessarily papal supremacy of the, the sort that you hear now. Um, and so the, the question, so, so, so God authorizes the Catholic Church and the states, you know, basically a monarchy, right? So you, it's the throne and altar, okay? The Catholic altar. But here's a third question. In cases of conflict, who wins? Well, the church, owing to its nobler purpose, comes out ahead in certain key issues. Because it has a higher good, it can deputize the state to function as its vice regent, um, um, in particular to enforce its law, to enforce the law of the church or the canon law. And this includes laws against baptized Christians becoming heretics or apostates. And so, as would sometimes happen, the Pope or the, the or a council would call on a local monarch to enforce canon law, say, by executing a heretic. Or they would suppress Protestant pamphlets. Or they would um, engage in certain kinds of liturgical reforms uh, directed at educating uh, the illiterate in certain kinds of doctrines. Um, so the thought was that the what makes for Catholic integralism is these three things. The divine authorization of the state, direct divine authorization of the state, the direct divine authorization of the church, and then the in the Catholic form, and then the subordination of the state to the church in cases where there is some overlap in their missions, and the church can deputize the state to operate as its secular arm. That's what's often called its secular arm. That was the dominant political theology in the Latin Roman, the Latin former Latin Roman Empire, right? Okay, so we're not talking about the Greeks because they're Orthodox and they've got a diff, somewhat different picture. Okay, um, that's more or less the dominant political theology from, say, the 11th century, really maybe the 12th or 13th century, down through the Reformation. Even in fact, it was the Counter Reformation theologians, um, Suarez, Vittoria, um, Bellarmine who articulated integralism against, in particular, James I's Oath of Allegiance, um, which required Catholics to swear sort of ultimate loyalty to James rather than to the Pope. Um, so integralism gets articulated in part as a response to the Reformation, but it's also a part of the sort of pre-Reformation uh, practice. So there's other views floating around, but that's what Catholic integralism is. And it's, pro, it's pre-liberal. This is a fundamentally pre-modern theory, because God has this sort of central role in authorizing all of political power. Um, so, um, so what happens is um, when the Reformation, you know, takes root, uh, people realize they don't, they agree that God authorizes the state. They agree that God authorizes the church. They don't agree about the proper form of the church. They definitely don't agree about the proper form of the state either, should it be a monarchy or a democracy. And so they don't agree about the church having authority over the state because they don't even agree about what the church is or the state is. Um, and so what happens is the liberal tradition starts to say, well, maybe the church is not this higher polity. Maybe it's not a polity at all. Maybe it shouldn't enforce its law coercively. So these are things that Hobbes said, but these are things that Locke said, and that many Christians started to accept. 
that that the church is more of a voluntary institution within the polity rather than its own distinctive polity. But what integralism is, it is a radical departure from liberal thought because um, it says that the church is a polity. And it is a polity that is superior to the secular polity. Um, and so that's the difference with liberalism. That's the deep sort of the big difference. So the, I'm, this may be a dumb question, but as, as you've been explaining this and talking about it, where, where does like a state church, a state Protestant church fit into thinking about integralism? So say England or even like Massachusetts or Virginia early on when they seem to like have an official, this is our state religion, um, you know, and my friends who are hardcore old school Baptists are like, yes, we were like beaten uh, because we were Baptists at, at different <laughs> points in time in America. Yep. So like, where does that fit? Yep. In? Well, so suppose you're a confessional Lutheran. You just reject Catholic theology. Okay. You got a priest of the believer kind of view going on. Um, you might think one way you might go is think of that the state, the church is itself a, a kind of polity. Um, but it just has a Protestant form. And so whoever the ecclesiastical authorities are, they can direct the state in various respects. But the problem is, once you're Protestant, unless you're just like a super duper Anglican, I mean, you don't want the church to be a separate polity. Um, because you have a, th you think that God authorizes the state and the church either is uh, under the authority of the state um, or it just has totally independent authority as its own institution, but it doesn't have any power over the state. Um, and sometimes it's just the old Orthodox view that the, the, that the Pope has, or sorry, that the monarch has ecclesiastical authority, can appoint bishops and so on and so forth. I mean, in many ways, Anglicanism is just like the, the, the sort of original high Anglican ecclesiology is like not, wildly different than Eastern Orthodox. It's just, and the position that many in the Catholic West held, which was just that, you know, uh, the, the, the king should be able to appoint the bishops in this realm. Um, this is integralism was articulated as an alternative both to monarchical ecclesiastical supremacy and papal supremacy. Um, and, and, and many of its articulations is articulated as a, as a um, compromise between excessive monarchical and excessive papal claims. Today, it's considered extremely reactionary and authoritarian, but in its heyday, it was a moderation. So the, the, the Protestant view, just the church just has no authority over the state. Um, so, you know, that's why a lot of Catholics and a lot of libertarians, you know, and um, really don't like um, the Reformation. Because they see it as having like given all this power to the state and all this power to the monarch. But if you look in the early liberals, I mean, they're really worried about the Pope doing things like deposing kings and stuff and burning people alive and stuff like that. Although the Popes would tell the kings to do this. So just to be clear. Um, so, you know, they're, they're thinking the church's polity is just like not, it's just not good. Um, um, and then my kind of classical liberal reaction is, yeah, I mean, maybe the state should be more like the church, whereas the integralists are saying the church should be more like the state again. So um, I want to be sure we have a chance to ask this question. Maybe if we, if we do have time, Jordan will fire another one away. But um, 
I want to ask you about some some resources that you would recommend for Christians who want, whether it's integralism or liberalism, if a a believer, whether it's a pastor or a layperson, um, wants to learn more about these things, do you have two or three um, resources that you think would be accessible for somebody to really get their feet wet and understand things? I mean, the big problem is that there's just not a lot of great discussion between theologians and political philosophers. Um, because most political philosophers are secular and most theologians are not secular, although some theologians are secular. Um, so there's just, I mean, almost all Christian philosophers, for instance, work in metaphysics and epistemology. So there's just almost nobody carry out the basic conversation. Um, so I once asked Robert Adams this question. He's one of the great living Christian philosophers. And he just said to read the different American political theological traditions, just to start with America. I'm going to start with America. In America, there's, well, and actually in, in talking with my friend Brian McGraw, who's a dean at Wheaton, it's really four traditions, probably should have been four. Bob gave me three and... Um, so I'll give you the, the four and some, some people that you might look at. First, there's just the Catholic intellectual tradition, which is not the dominant tradition in the United States. Um, but this is just going to give you the background in Aquinas and natural law. You can look at the mid-20th century liberals like John Courtney Murray, and then you can look at the sort of quarter, third quarter, you know, Catholic uh, conservatives um, that were trying to reconcile with capitalism like Michael Novak, or you can look at people that are more hesitant about markets, but that are Catholic traditionalists like Russell Kirk. Um, then, you know, you look at the Protestant realists, the Augustinian realists, um, people like Reinhold Niebuhr, um, and there's, he's got a, still got a number of followers. And, and they're not thinking about politics in terms, they're thinking about politics in terms of power relations and balancing uh, sources of power, because, of course, Niebuhr famously argued that you can't really have morality at the level of groups, just at the level of individuals. And so really what politics was a matter of organizing positions of power. This is in a certain way a little bit more consonant with the founders. Um, but the founders all thought that politics could be a moral politics. Um, but they didn't. Um, uh, but they were very aware of the need to sort of divide and balance power. So you've got these Augustinian realists. Um, following kind of Niebuhr uh, vein, but, you know, obviously like more man and moral society. Then you have the Anabaptists, the, the, the pacifists. So you have, you know, Yoder's The Politics of Jesus, and then today there's Stanley Hauerwas and his students. Um, that's the pacifist tradition and Christian anarchist tradition. It's small and not very influential, but um, the reason I like it, and I just have a reference piece out on Christian anarchist thought. Jacques Ellul has this book, so the important Christian intellectual who wrote on propaganda is French reform. Um, but he um, has this book, Anarchy and Christianity, that's really good. People don't know about it. Um, and they just take what Jesus says about not resisting evil and turning the other cheek and stuff like that extremely seriously. It's like we just we just think once the government, once it's the government, we just sweep all this under the rug. Right? Like, well, why is Jesus worried about violence and why aren't we more worried about violence is it is it just is it why don't we apply these things to being state officials so i just think it raises really important questions like why don't we care about state violence i mean like theologically like why, why isn't that a problem so i like the natural law tradition because it reminds us that politics is a moral enterprise 
I like the Augustinian realist tradition because it reminds us we have to design institutions to limit power. I like the Christian anarchist tradition because uh, it reminds us of this sort of pure hideousness of coercion. If you um, if you really really look it in the eye, um, and then there's of course the Kuyperians and their kind of natural law and reformed. Um, there's a lot of them around uh, today. Um, so I I see them I see them as um, uh, kind of draw. I see them as kind of drawing both on reformed theology and natural law tradition. Um, but, but I think they are distinctive, the distinctive group. So, you know, Abraham Kuyper, obviously is the prime minister of the Netherlands, uh, and, uh, over a hundred years ago, I can't remember exactly that time he was in office, but, um, but he influenced a lot of, a lot of people in the United States. Um, so there's just some traditions that it's worth looking into. So you've got, you've got your Anabaptists, you've got your Augustinians, you've got your Thomists. Um, and then you have some interesting, cool, smart, reform, natural law people. Um, and so, you know, that's just telling you to pile in. I mean, I just, I can't give you one general resources cause I just don't know about it. Just don't know about it. Um, but that's a way to think about what's going on in America. Now, if, if you get to England, you know, things are different, um, in a, in a variety of respects because you have all these defenses, the Anglican church, um, that, that's, that's quite complicated. And then you, you know, you have, um, all these deep disputes between Anglicans and Calvinists um, that go back a very, very long time. Um, and then England secularizes in a lot of ways sooner than the United States. So the religious thought doesn't stay as vibrant as long, but there's a lot of really interesting people. And I think N.T. Wright has some interesting stuff here and there um, in, in political thought. Um, but I mean, the big person, the contemporary person is Oliver O'Donovan. But the problem is I can't decipher his work. It's just too hard. I don't know what he's saying. Um, I have to read other people to even know what's going on. Um, whereas all the Americans I mentioned, you can just read and you kind of get what's going on. Like you, you read Niebuhr, you read Yoder, you read Murray, um, you read Kuiper, any of those people, you, you, you get it. Um, it's, it's just not that hard. So I appreciate you saying that. Cause I feel like sometimes, you know, the, these really smart people become like these figureheads and everybody's like, wow, they're the pinnacle. But I'm like, wait a second. I have no idea what's going on. I don't want to raise my hand and say that because then I feel like I'll be out of the club. I can't tell you what the desire of nations is about. I can't tell you the first, its thesis. I I can't tell you the argument for the thesis. Well, that makes me feel better. I've read it, just to be clear. Um, it's tough. It's tough. But so there's a bunch of cool American folks, but they're not engaged with a lot of the, the classical political philosophy. But I mean, like Locke is a Protestant. Like he's, I, I read Locke as a Christian. He's a Protestant Christian, first and foremost. Okay, kind of an Armenian, you know, on the Armenian side. Okay, you read him that way, everything hangs together. I don't read him primarily as a classical liberal. I don't read him, you know. Primarily as a Democrat, uh, yeah, early Democrat, reason a Protestant. Um, his theology's everywhere, all from his earliest stuff when he was just getting his feet wet politically, when he was just a doctor, um, and all the way down to his very uh, last works. Um, but so I, I think it's just great to read Locke. I, I mean, I just think the first and second treatises are awesome, and I think you should read the first treatise because it's got all this biblical stuff. It's super good weird thing about Locke, and this is just a fun puzzle, which is that in the first and second treatise, he talks a great deal about the Old Testament, particularly in the first treatise. 
Um, but it's very, very little to say about the New Testament. But if you read the letter on toleration, which you should also read, it's almost all about the New Testament. I still can't figure out why this is. I still don't under I still don't really know. Um, but you should read the letter. And you should read the first and second treatises, because I just think that if you're an American or British Christian who wants to think about politics, you have to engage with John Locke. You just can't not do it. Um, so, you know, I just think you should just read Locke. And, and there's lots of good people to read about read about him. I have a bias towards the analytic philosophers that I think are best on reading Locke, like Jeremy Waldron and uh, a. John Simmons, who are really good at bringing out the theological elements in Locke. Um, so, yeah, there's, a, there's some interesting 20th, a lot of interesting 20th century people. You know, the founders are cool in lots of ways, but I mean, look, the fact of the matter is they were pretty secular guys uh, for the most part. They weren't, I mean, look, the people who ratified the Constitution were overwhelmingly Christian. So if you want to say this is a Christian nation, you can say... The people who ratified the Constitution and supported it were overwhelmingly Christian. It's fine. I just mean like the founding generations themselves, like if you read Madison or Jefferson or whatever, they are not starting off by citing reams of Scripture like Locke is. Like just open the first treatise. It's just everywhere. Okay. Cool thing about Hobbes is, is that once you get into the back half of Leviathan, it's also full of Scripture. Um. But Hobbes is clearly trying to contort Christianity to fit his political project. So, you know, the readings aren't even remotely plausible. But Locke actually, first treatise, he's pretty clever. Um, I think he's a pretty clever scriptural exegete. Um, I really do. I bet people don't read the first treatise, but he's super smart. Um, um, so, yeah, anyway. Thomists, Augustinians, pacifists, those are like the three ways I clumped together American political theology. Um, and uh, that's, you know, you're just going to have to, you're just going to have to root through it until we get a lot better reference works. There's, it's, there are some nice reference works out there. There's some, some, some secondary, good secondary literature that I can recommend uh, as well. Um, um, but yeah, I, I actually think they all get something right. Um, and so I recommend them all. <laughs> um but, you know, it's going to take a long time for me to, first of all, get this integralism book out of my system and then um, work my work, work, work more in synthetic political theology. Well, I'll say I think this has been great and I think this has been a really nice introduction. So for those who have been listening, um, you can you've Kevin's got a website, so you could just type in his name, KevinValier.com. Yep, KevinValier.com. And you've got everything from, like, your books are all listed here. You've got abouts, and, I mean, research and articles. You've got blog stuff. So I think I know that a lot of our listeners are interested in you because I've had, like, 10 people ask me to come to have you come on the show. So oh, dear. people like your stuff, so I know that. So if, you, if you're not familiar with them, go check out his work there. You can go – I'll make sure to link to as many books as I can in the show notes as well. So you can click the link and go find uh, the books there. And you mentioned, I can't remember if you mentioned while we were talking or beforehand, but you've got a bunch of books you were planned on at least working on over the next couple of years as well. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so I'll just give you that brief. I'll give you that, that briefly. I mean, just a fair warning on my, my first three books, you know, they are written in the language of analytic political philosophy. Okay. And some people can find that a little, a little daunting. 
Um, I tried to write Trust in a Polarized Age in a way that was accessible to multiple disciplines, but I'm not entirely sure I succeeded. Um, however, this next book, I've been working on the prose ferociously. Um, um, because Oxford invited me to write this book on integralism for non-philosophers. It's even with the politics division. It's not even with philosophy. Um, and the people who are interested in integralism are mostly on social media, which means they have short attention spans. So I've been, um, you know, working to make that book more readable. That book will come out in early 23. Um, and I'm calling the book All the Kingdoms of the World after Matthew 4. And let me just explain why, because your listeners will think this is cool. So, the devil takes Jesus up to the high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He says he'll give them to you. If you will fall down and worship me. Now, the way most Christians uh, read that is that Satan is tempting Jesus with power. Jesus says, no, only I'm only going to serve God. Okay. Um, and... The fascinating thing about this, and this is something that sometimes Christian anarchists praise, which is, why did Jesus take Satan's offer seriously? Like, he just sort of took for granted that Satan could give him all the kingdoms of the world. Like, he didn't dispute it. He just, did, he just said, no thanks. Now, ultimately, God gives him all the relevant authority. But you know how the integralists read this? And how that was read in, in, in integralist times? It was that unless the state is sanctified by the church, it is governed by the devil. And so the point of integralism is to baptize the state. Is to take it from the devil and bring it to Christ. So I called the book All the Kingdoms of the World because you can look at it two ways. right? You can look at it in the liberal way, which is power bad. right? And you can look at it the integralist way and says, power Baptize it before it gets out of control. Now, 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 right? They're sending millions of people right into hell as we speak. You know, um, we've got to sanctify those kingdoms. Um, very diff- We don't think, we don't read it that way. We don't read it that way now. Um, but it's meant, it's meant to allow these two different visions of what to do with political power. Do we limit it or um, do we use it? Because right? that's really what the integralists today are all about, right? They're the ones saying we got to use the power, not set it aside, right? It's 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 the Boromir option. I also appreciate Go that you out. called it the Boromir option. That makes you like ten times cooler in my yes. book. <laughs> well, <laughs> you'll have to have me on again so I can disabuse your. Your listeners of, of That's that. That's right. <laughs> my wife assures me I'm supremely uncool. <laughs> well, anybody, I think you and Oliver Crisp have both mentioned Lord of the Rings in an episode before. So you're both like, now you're on the top two in my book. Anybody who does that yeah. gets there. The integralists hate Tolkien, by the way. Really? And there's a very particular reason that Vermeule hates Tolkien. is because Tolkien was an anarchist. And Vermeule is a fan of the central state. I mean, you get to the, you get to the end of The Lord of the Rings. And the, they're trying to turn the Shire into a state, and it's like obviously not going well, right? The Shire is a medieval pre-state institution. Tolkien hated the state. He hated the administrative state. Vermeule, as chief integralist, is like one of the world's leading authorities of the administrative state. So the integral, like if you want another reason not to like integralists, is that they, they don't like Tolkien. Well, now I'm sold, so... 
Good. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate you. Pretty soon, you know, if you people, your listeners convert to integralism. They're going to be shaking their fists well, at, um, uh, you know, at, at, at talking. So that's, that's a fate worse than that. I think, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of our listeners love this stuff for whatever reason, but um, it's... Also, what is up with these Catholic Lewis haters? You've encountered these people? <laughs> these people that despise C.S. Lewis? Vermeule also despises I Lewis. I mean, I haven't. Brandon, I don't know if you have. I've seen a little bit of that on Twitter. I don't know if they were Catholics or not, but I have seen some Lewis hate recently. So, Yeah, well, a lot of it's, a lot of it's Catholic. Some of it's literary snobbery. Um, uh, maybe they like Middlemarch better or something. Um, but... Um, um, some of it's uh, uh, also that, that Lewis was an anti-totalitarian thinker. I mean, in 1944, think what happens was published. Okay, you get 1984, Rand's the Fountainhead, um, Rosewater Lane's Discovery of Freedom, which a lot of people don't know about, um, but she was the daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder. She's very famous in her time. Um, and you get that hideous strength, which is Lewis's anti-totalitarianism. So, so he is one of a piece of the, the 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 World War II and and high road to serfdom. Sorry, mustn't forget that one. So it's it was a a, a banner year for anti-totalitarian thinking. So Tolkien and Lewis are very much in and have an anti-statist um, strand. And integralism says to embrace the state. Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I think the the topic's fun, and we've got all these great resources to go get. So thank you for doing that for us. And everybody's everybody's been listening. This is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on Earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.